Hey everybody, it's Kenya, and this is the Thank You For Saying No podcast, where we find meaning in life's unexpected turns. Drew Morgan, welcome to the Thank You For Saying No podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Um, quick shout out to Eric Rosales for suggesting that you be on the show. And also shout out to Culture Court for allowing us to cross paths. So yeah. quick plug for Culture Court. Culture you- Court, every last Monday of the month at the world famous comedy store. Yes. And what's the show about? Uh, we have fake trials. Uh, that any- you know, anybody can process that. Okay, we have a fake trial. But we put like all of polyamory on trial as nice. an example. Uh-huh. Or we uh, we ask women, why don't you like short men? Yeah. <laughs> and then we have a court case about it. Yeah. In that particular case, it turns out because they're kind of buttholes, at least the ones we had were. <laughs> Not all short kings. <laughs> it's a very fun show. Um, you might see me as a judge sometimes, so mm-hmm. good stuff. So for those who don't know Drew Morgan, he is a comedy comedian, a writer, an actor, um, and you've traveled internationally with a comedy group called Well Read, yep. and you uh, have been featured on Comedy Central. MTV and The View, and you have your own comedy special on Amazon that just came out called yeah. To My Future Kids, I'm Sorry, which oh, is very funny. You know more about my <laughs> career than my wife. This is excellent so far. I did my homework. This is the best interview I've ever done. Is that it? Are we done? No, oh, you've okay. done more. <laughs> I meant with the interview. I was like, can we just end it after you get my plugs right? Great job. Um, but your your special was really funny. I watched it. Thank you. Congrats thanks for, on that. Thanks for paying for it. It's yeah. behind a paywall You're because welcome. we don't have Nate Bargatze clout. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks. I put a lot into it. You know, it's sort of a pandemic special. I uh, recorded it over a year ago. Thought mm-hmm. it was going to be out a lot sooner than it was, which is frustrating. That's a very frustrating thing about this business. Is yeah. You put your heart into something and then you kind of lose control of it for mm-hmm. a while. Um, but that's fine. You know, like I had one friend, uh, a lot of law school friends, which I'm sure we'll get into Yeah. very bluntly was like, Hey bud, I watched the special last 20 minutes were great. And he goes, first 10, you kept talking about the pandemic. I was like, Oh no, he recorded this a long time ago. And I was like, thank you for validating all my fears. <laughs> that's funny. I thought it was great. It was, thank you. It was still relevant. Yeah. We're still in a pandemic. Sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, but more flowers. So you co-authored a book that is a bestseller for um, political comedy yep. called The Liberal Redneck Manifesto. Yep. And you have two award-winning podcasts, um, Well Read <laughs> yeah. and Into the Abiscuit. Well, that one we paused. Okay. And but it's still I out do, there, right? You can still find it. And yeah. now I do Gravy Baby here in the studio. Gravy. Oh. Shout out to the studio. Yeah. Where are we? Yeah. What do we call this studio? Petty Cash. Petty Cash. Yeah. Petty Cash Studios. Um, and you're an attorney. Yes. An accomplished attorney who's helped a lot of people. Uh, I've helped some people. That's. I'm, I'm sure if you asked, if you did a survey of them, they may feel differently. <laughs> I was a criminal defense lawyer and mm-hmm. a public defender specifically. Yeah. Which I'm sure, I know you know, I'm sure most yeah. of your listeners know, but if they don't, you seen on TV, like, um, if you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. Mm-hmm. Like in the cop shows, I was the one that was appointed to the people who couldn't afford. Yeah. yeah. That's hard, tough, good work. Yeah, it is. It's all of those things. Yeah. yeah. So when I first learned that you were an attorney before doing comedy full time, I was thinking like, I think we need to have him on the podcast because we love a pivot story here. Mm-hmm. Like, cause there's lots of, um, lessons to be learned. There's lots of unexpected turns and it takes a lot of courage to try something new and just take a leap in a completely different direction. Yeah. A lot of people say that. And I think the thing about like courage and bravery is unless it's like a lion, like a literal lion or an <laughs> intruder or something, you don't really feel brave. You mm. just are sort of living your life. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, I guess for me, it's like if people want to say, oh, that inspires me. Cool. Yeah. I just was living life. You know, I had a lot of people who supported me. Yeah. And uh, and I got lucky, I think. So, yeah. That's good. But I mean, I think someone, I think it's my dad. He says the, I'm going to say this wrong and he's going to get me for it. But the recipe for success is like, I think it's the intersection of luck and hard work at the same time. 100%. So, um, 
Okay, so today I want to talk about your nose, some of your nose, some of your unexpected turns. <laughs> For a second, I thought you want to talk about my nose. Your nose. I was like, it used to be perfect, and then I broke it twice. <laughs> your N apostrophe S's. Yeah. Um, and some of the meaning you found in your difficult times. Sure. So let's start back at the beginning. Okay. Where did you grow up? Sunbright, Tennessee. And tell us about that. Ooh, okay. Population 600. <laughs> it's wow. uh, 598 good ones, two shitty ones. Mm. They know who they are. <laughs> Uh, middle of nowhere, rural Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, people are like, what was it like to grow up in such a small town? I don't know what it was like to grow up anywhere else, so it's yeah. hard for me to answer that. I, mm-hmm. I do know that, like, MTV changed everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, we got the internet and MTV around the same time, mm-hmm. and it's still a different world. If you go to where I live now, it's still not at all a city. Yeah. But back when I was like eight, it was a completely different world. It was a completely different culture. It might as well have been a different country. Wow. And so I grew up with that. But then when I hit right before my teen years, it was like the world opened up. And my brother got like the NWA records. And I was like, what the fuck is this? You know, culture sort of exploded through TV. Yeah. So it's like I just grew up in this weird, small, backwards town Mm -hmm. that, um, I didn't know it was backwards. It wasn't backwards to me. Yeah. You know, I didn't know any different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it changed quickly, you know. What parts of growing up in such a small town have shaped who you are? Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. I think I have a chip on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I've worked hard to get rid of it. But it's hard to get rid of it. I think that anybody with a chip on their shoulder for any reason, especially if it's related to identity, mm-hmm. you lean on it. Mm-hmm. And it helps shape you. Like... I had a thick accent. Thicker. Mm-hmm. I know you probably hear an accent now, but mm-hmm. I had a thick accent growing up. And people would make fun of me when I like played AAU basketball or did anything even in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. Like Knoxville, Tennesseans were like, where are you from, you hick? <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's just like an example of that, that chip developing mm. of like, all right, well, I'll show them. Yeah. And I carried that all the way to law school mm. for sure. And so it's hard now. You ask how it defines me. I used it as fuel. Mm. I'm not a dumb hick. Yeah. But then at some point I realized, okay, the usefulness of this has expired. Yeah. Now I just seem weird and bitter if I'm constantly worried, but it's hard to get rid of. Yeah. It's hard to lean on something for so long and then try to let go of it. So it shaped me in that way. Um, I think it shaped me in other ways just in terms of the values of my family. I don't know if those are small town values, but those are definitely like, yeah. like my parents. Hard work. I, I think I put it on a pedestal. Yeah. Like I really, really, really have integrity on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get like really angry when I feel like people get stuff they don't work for, which mm. I should be happy for. I should yeah. be like, oh, that guy got lucky, you know? And then so you became an attorney. When did you decide you wanted to be an attorney? Man, I don't think I ever decided I wanted to be an attorney, but I definitely decided <laughs> to go to law school. Mm-hmm. I was a smart kid mm-hmm. who had no idea what he wanted to do. After college, I went to Australia, hmm. uh, hung out on the beach. Nice. I was like a bartender. Nice. You just decided to go to Australia or did you do like... Yeah. One, <laughs> one of my friends asked me if I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. He was going to go. Mm-hmm. I think the Europeans call it a gap year. Oh, nice. It's not really a concept in America, but the idea no, was... I think we have that here. Okay. So the idea was like, hey, your life's about to start, whether yeah. it's grad school or a job. Mm-hmm. So he was like, my high school friends and I are going to Australia. And this was a college friend of mine. And he's like, you've only met one of them, but they're cool. We got room. Mm-hmm. You want to come? And I knew I was going to apply to law school. I was like, yeah, if I get in, I'll just defer. Yeah. And uh, I did. And I went there and I took the LSAT and I got a good gr- score. And I was like, everyone told me I was argumentative, uh, which I thought was bullshit. <laughs> uh, so I was like, all right, I guess lawyer. Mm-hmm. Like I, I knew education was the way out. I didn't yeah. want to live in that small town. Mm. I really didn't. Yeah. And I thought maybe I'll come back here one day, but I want to see the world. And I felt like education was a way to do that. Yeah. I naively thought, well, lawyers make good money. Even if I hate it, I'll, <laughs> I'll bank a couple hundred thousand and then move on with my yeah. life. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's, I just, I kind of was hiding, you know, mm. that 24 year old, 23 year old, like, I don't know what to do in my life. Let me keep piling on the accolades. Yeah. I see that. I can, I can get that. Yeah. Um, so did you have any, or tell us about a thank you for saying no moment that led you to becoming an attorney? Uh, 
I was in South Africa studying. Oh my God. <laughs> I studied abroad in South Africa. It was really. When? When you were in law school? When I was in undergrad. undergrad. Okay. Where did you go to undergrad? Miraville College. It's a little okay. liberal arts school. Nice. Kind of close to where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a study abroad program. I wanted to do it. Uh, shout out to moms who like pushed their kids to. She was like, you got to study abroad. And in retrospect, that was the one way my mom lived through me. Mm. Like my mom wasn't one of those people who was like, you know, do sports because I didn't get to. But in retrospect, she was very much like, <laughs> see the world because I didn't get to. Yeah. So I did. Uh, I had a great time there. I got to meet Nelson Mandela in his house. What? Yeah, it was wild. How did you How did you end up there? Because uh, in his house. I don't even know the question. Just, yeah. Can you expand on anything? <laughs> <laughs> um, his his oldest grandson and some would say his favorite is Mandela Mandela, who's mm -hmm. now in politics. Okay. He was in school at the school I was at, and wow. he lived in my dorm, and we just started talking mm -hmm. he was in, he's a very interested guy he's interesting obviously but he's very interested mm. and i had a south african politics class like the history of south african modern south african politics or something like that that they really really wanted the exchange students to take yeah i was like yeah i'll take that well Mandela mandela ended up in it as like a um <laughs> as in like a forced elective like mm -hmm. it was just like <laughs> Well, it was hilarious. We're studying his grandfather. Yeah. And the teacher's like, and this and this, and he's raising his hand. And I'm like, all right, now we're going to hear yeah. the rest of the story. That's crazy. So just met him there. We lived in the same dorm. Became kind of drinking buddies. Invited me to his home for like a ceremony. Uh, Nelson was going to speak to his oh, people. Oh, Nelson? Uh, yeah, that's how, <laughs> Mr. That, Mandela. Okay. <laughs> well, I feel weird saying Mr. Mandela. I feel like I should say President Mandela. Uh because he would say grandfather. Grandfather was going to speak <laughs> to his people, the yeah. Osa people. Mm -hmm. and he was like, you want to come? He invited me and my friend Josh. We were like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was so surreal. We got there and um, sort of lived on a compound. And I don't, not in the American version of a compound. It had nothing to do with like military. I don't mean that. But mm -hmm. they don't have huge houses there. It's not part of their culture. But they have huge families. Mm -hmm. so, in, so they all live together. But instead of living together in a huge house... There's like six houses connected on yeah. a little plot of land, right? Yeah. So I was at the Mandela compound, for wow. lack of a better way to phrase it. And I was just like on a little side house. And we were like, we know we're going to hear him speak tomorrow, but are we going to get to meet him? And Mandela came in one evening and was like, the old man will meet you now. That's how he said it. <laughs> we were like, oh my God. So we like walking through this hall. And Mindless explained to us sort of the decorum of what is expected of mm -hmm. us, which this is an international. Yeah. I mean, I, who's more famous than Nelson Mandela internationally? Maybe a couple soccer players. You know what I mean? Like there's like yeah. maybe five people. Mm -hmm. So we're walking and he's explaining to us how to act basically, which is good information yeah. for a bunch of ignorant American kids from the South. Mm -hmm. Well, as we're walking, we are interrupted by Nelson Mandela. He was at a dinner and the dinner was over and we were going to meet oh, him and greet him mm -hmm. after the dinner. He was going to receive guests after mm -hmm. the dinner that he'd had with his other guests. Mm -hmm. Dude had to pee. He had to pee? Nelson Mandela had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so he's supposed to be waiting for us in this room and we're supposed to be getting instructions on how to formally introduce ourselves and the thing and the cameras and all that. But he had to pee. Oh my God. So he just walks out. Well, I'm there with his favorite <laughs> grandson. So they have a moment. They hug. They speak in oh, their language. I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then Mondla says, these are my friends, Josh and Drew. Well, I was nervous. Yeah. Why wouldn't I be? Oh, yeah. It's Nelson Mandela. Yeah. One thing I do when I get nervous is I put my hand in my pocket. Mm. Well, you're not supposed to do that. Oh, no. That's apparently like pretty offensive. It's considered like offensive to do wow. that in front of someone yeah. of esteem Show in their hands. culture. Mm -hmm. Shake hands. Yeah. He's polite. He glows. I'm not kidding. He glows. The man glows. Like he's got a different energy. And I'm not just, it's not because I was yeah. in awe of him. I was, but like, as soon as you see him, you're like, that dude's yeah. vibrations are different than ours. Mm. And it was over, right? And then this dude who had been with him stayed behind and just starts like speaking hatefully to Mandla. And then Mandla gets in his face and then they're borderline yelling. Oh my God. I'm like, what is going on? That guy was offended. He was mad that I put my hand in my oh, pocket wow. and was like, this is what you do. Something like, this is what you do. You bring people here. I have no respect for our elders and our customs. Yeah. And Mondo's like, you know, my grandfather's met 
diplomats and presidents and you don't get to speak for him. And this, this guy's, you know, my friend and yeah. you won't speak to me this way. I was told this is what happened from Mondla and yeah. his buddy afterwards. I'm just sitting there. No captions. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no English subtitles. <laughs> just like, and they're looking at me. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew I did it, but I didn't know what I had done. Yeah. So then I, I went back and me and my friend Josh and he, we were just sitting there and it was like so weird and awkward and we were just quiet. And then Josh goes, dude, you offended Nelson Mandela. <laughs> I was like, oh no. Anyway, I got super sidetracked. Yeah. No, that was a fun story. How, but did you like have to apologize or how did you get out? I told Mandela that I wanted to apologize, but he was like, no, you don't owe an apology. Oh, wow. He said that that gentleman owes an apology to me. Mm -hmm. for getting in my face and he probably owes an apology to you because it made you feel uncomfortable yeah. but he's like but I, I can't force yeah. him to do that and I was like I don't want one it's fine <laughs> um it was just like a but the, the question was you know nose on the way to law school mine and I became buddies and I kind of thought I was going to end up living in South Africa mm. after college um and without getting too much into it and frankly I'm not super sure the details from his end but the idea that he had in terms of basically doing business with me, like giving me a job, yeah, uh, he changed his mind. Mm. And uh, I think I would have had to have said yes mm. if, yeah. if he hadn't changed his mind. And literally everything would be different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good one. And so then, so you eventually went on to law school. Yeah, I went to Australia. I made out with a lot of Brazilian girls. Okay. Uh, had a lot of fun there. And it just sort of was like, oh, I'll get lost here. Mm -hmm. I'll wake up 40, mm -hmm. you know, behind a bar. Yeah. There was nothing wrong with that. But it's not, at the time, I was very ambitious. It's mm -hmm. not what I wanted. Yeah. So I decided to go ahead and go to law school. I deferred for a year. They told me I could defer for one more year. I was like, if I defer for another year, I'm not going. Yeah. And I went to Boston College. <laughs> Nice. Uh, it was a good school at that time. It's still good. It was a great school at that time. It's, it's really good school. And uh, yeah. So what was the hardest part of your attorney journey for you? Mm. For There's, me, it was the bar <laughs> and finding really? a job. But that's not everyone's experience. No. There's two, it's twofold. The first one was law school in general. Mm -hmm. I was a great student until I got there. Yeah. And not just in terms of my grades. Also, my practices. Mm -hmm. I was miserable. Mm. I was scared. Yeah. I was already, after your first year, you're like, what, 30 grand in the hole already? So I'm like, mm -hmm. I guess I'm stuck. I, I didn't have the the wisdom yeah. to quit. Mm. And I wish I would have. I was unhappy. Oh, so the first part was I was unhappy. And to their credit, a lot of my professors were like, well, listen, being an attorney is not like being a law student. Stick with this. Because they recognized that I had a talent for the courtroom. Yeah. And that was true. I did. That leads me to my second challenge on my attorney journey, which was while I loved the identity of being a criminal defense lawyer and I loved mock trial mm -hmm. when real people's lives were on the line. It's heavyweight. The weight of it was too much for me. I was not emotionally mature enough at yeah. that time. Mm -hmm. And I was going through some stuff, too, where my own brother was going through his own criminal yeah. process. Uh, he, he was on trial for murder and uh, just like the weight of it. So, so during law school, just being unhappy and, mm -hmm. and not being wanting to be there. And then as an attorney, very much wanting to be there, yeah. but not, I try not to be hard on myself when I talk about this stuff now, yeah. but I, I just really wasn't strong enough or mature enough, whatever word. Yeah. It might've been maturity, but I just, I couldn't, it always came home with me. I yeah. gained weight. I ended up in the hospital. Yeah. So, it's, it's a heavy stress, especially yeah. when you're doing work that's well, I mean any work, but I, I think it's a, a different level of of weight that you carry when you're helping people for like who need help. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Not just doing corporate law, not to take away from how hard that is too, but it's yeah. it's different. It's a different weight. And I I kind of think that in terms of being a public defender specifically, the people who are best at it lived through the system when mm -hmm. they were young. Mm-hmm. And have been able to compartmentalize that or work through it mm. or have never, ever, ever had any actual real, real pain. Yeah. Those are the two types of people I think who do it the best because the front end type of people, they do know what their clients and their clients' families are going through, but they've gone through it themselves and kind of come out the other side. Yeah. 
And then the other type of the person, it just they just don't know. I don't care how much empathy you have. You don't know what it's like mm-hmm. when you're not an attorney. You're not a police officer. You don't know anything about this stuff. All you know is that your 24-year-old son may go to prison for nine years. Mm-hmm. And there's, in your mind, it feels like there's like five questions that'll determine that and you don't understand them. Yeah. Because you think it should be, did he do it? Did he not do it? Who, wh- why, whose fault is it? Well, did he act alone? And that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But it's also like all this other wild stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, like a suppression hearing. It's like, well, did the police mm-hmm. do the right thing? And then as a parent, they're trying to understand. They want to know because you're trying to save your kid and like yeah. having to have those conversations was... uh it was tough and it also like kept reminding me of my own yeah. family you know yeah and so it was, it was too much i was i was in it and i i wasn't ready it was like i went yeah. to law school on a whim kind of mm-hmm. and now my entire life personally and professionally is pain mm. people's pain or my own mm. so how did you get through the challenging times of being an attorney i mean in some ways i didn't you know I quit. Um, I think there's there's a lot in that, though, in, yeah. in changing course when something's not working. I think there's value in that. 100%. I think for me, when I finally made the decision to, one of the things I realized is that I was becoming a bad attorney. Mm. And that made it easier to, mm. to make the decision. Because before that, it was like man up. It was a lot of the toxic masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of like grow up because it's not happening to me. I mean, it was with my brother, but like yeah. these people need a good lawyer. Mm-hmm. Me quitting's not going to help them. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's not about you. It's mm-hmm. about them. Um, But I had great people around me. Yeah. And I don't want, I did it for five years. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I made it two months. Um, That was in, you were in Miami then, right? I was Miami and then Knoxville. And then Knoxville. Yeah, I moved back home to be near the family during my brother's trial. Which took place in Knoxville? Well, close to Knoxville, but it ended up not taking place. It ended up taking a plea. Okay, gotcha. So, so yeah. Oh, but the, the, the mentors. I mean, just mm-hmm. bosses who I trusted. Yeah. And then and colleagues, too, who were going through not what I was going through exactly, but similar things, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, some of those people I'm still in contact with. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I think that, like, me speaking, looking from the outside, and I'm sure it feels different for you walking through it, but, like, I think there, it's a big deal to recognize when something isn't working for you because people will go their whole life being miserable because they feel like they have to just stick it through and well, stay you don't want to fail. Yeah, exactly. If you do something you care about, then you don't want to fail at it. Mm-hmm. You don't want to feel like a failure. Yeah. And I think our culture is set up to, like, teach people that, you know, you are a failure if you quit. Mm-hmm. And I get that. You don't want, if you're raising a kid, which yeah. I got a baby on the way, mm-hmm. you don't want that kid to just give up. Yeah. But there's definitely something in like pushing too hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a woman I owe an apology to, and I'm not even sure she knows I owe her an apology, but there was a woman I worked with when I was an intern mm-hmm. at the Roxbury Defender's Office in Boston who recognized that she could not handle the things I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. And then she got a grant. So in the public defense world, when someone gets accused of a crime, they often like might lose their housing. Yeah. They're going to lose a bunch of things mm-hmm. because of this crime. But their their lawyer isn't allowed to help with that. We can only help with the crime right. issue. Mm-hmm. So she created this whole grant to do that work for the and as a young, arrogant, asshole law student, <laughs> I heard, you know, it was like, oh, she quit because of the emotion of this. So she became this other thing. Yeah. And I was like, all right. You know, I didn't say anything negative about her, but I remember in my head, I guess I don't know an apology because I didn't do anything. But I remember in my head being like, yeah, not hardcore enough. Mm-hmm. And now I recognize her as one of the bravest people. Mm-hmm that I met yeah, and I didn't recognize it right in front of my face yeah. as what it was, which is bravery. Mm-hmm. And I got to give myself some credit of learning that lesson later. Yeah. It's admirable to reflect. Yeah. And realizing, but it was hard for me. I had a lot of like, for lack of a better word, survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Like I had close friends who were public defenders and I didn't want to talk to them. Yeah. Cause I felt like, even though I now recognized, Oh, I shouldn't have judged that woman. I was like, yeah, they're judging me and they, and they're right. Mm. You know, I couldn't hack it. Yeah. I don't see it that way. 
if I may interject my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I don't now. <laughs> okay, good. But just to sort of turn it into a lesson, you know, for the viewers at home, for the listeners at home. Yeah. Um, I think if you looked back on all the good things that you did, like all the cases that you did finish or see through, and even if you didn't win them, the fact that you were that person that people could rely on to help them find a way out. Because if it wasn't you, then nobody. Well, and I can I can honestly say that I didn't let myself become a bad attorney. It was starting to happen. Mm-hmm. I was falling apart at the seams. Yeah. And I recognized that and started getting continuances. Yeah. And then dipped. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get that. I mean, I've lost cases. Our, our cases are like years long. And yeah. It's not just me working on them. It's a really big team effort. But we've lost cases and that feels really shitty because you want <laughs> the you want like the defendant to pay the consequences and you want the right thing to be done. Yeah. Um, so that I know how tough that is. That those are things I'll be thinking about for the rest of my legal career, <laughs> however long it is. So I, I get that. Um, make sure you think about the wins too, that long. Yes. That's think that's the secret. The wins are fun. When remember them, like look back on them. Yeah. Like if you're going to be haunted by the losses, then make sure you look back on the wins. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like it's either do neither mm-hmm. or, you, or do both. <laughs> or do both. Yeah. I like that. Um, okay. So Miami and then you moved to Knoxville for your brother's trial. I want to be close to my family and mm-hmm. also Knoxville has a great public defender's office. Okay. Like a really good one. Yeah. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about that time? It was the hardest time of my life. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hands down. Um, I was uh, working in a new job. Not a lot of people liked me. They didn't want me to get hired there mm-hmm. because of my comedy. I'd started doing comedy. At when that did point you start doing comedy? In Miami. Okay. I started doing comedy. They had found a joke that they didn't like or whatever. Half the office didn't want me to get hired. Mm-hmm. So I came in as a sort of a lightning rod. Mm-hmm. Um, my resume was impeccable compared to all their other candidates, but some sure. people just didn't want me to get hired there. I kind of knew, but I didn't really know. So I was just like, that was weird. My brother's situation was developing. I had learned somewhat recently before I moved that he had done it. Mm-hmm. I'd also learned why mm-hmm. to give some people some backstory and, for people listening, I don't know, trigger warning, whatever. Like, it's it's a really dark thing. Yeah. My brother was an addict. He had had to be in rehab to keep his job. He had a union job that protected him from getting fired when he f- was found out to be getting high at work. Mm. But to keep that job, he had to, like, go through certain steps. Yeah. He found a guy who would give him uh, clean drug tests, mm-hmm. fake ones, mm-hmm. who was, like, you know, had gone through all the processes to become a drug counselor, okay. but was a predator. Mm. Uh, was supplying my brother and a few other men with drugs. He was a, he was in the closet, small town America. Mm-hmm. This dude had his own demons that mm-hmm. he was dealing with and began the process of exchanging drugs and clean urines and all that for, for sex mm-hmm. with my brother, who as far as I know then and now is, is, not, is not gay. And I only bring that up because... My brother was raised in the same small town Christian culture. Mm-hmm. So I think it had to do with shame, right? Mm. Like I said, it's getting dark. Yeah. Then one day the guy uh, brings up my brother's kids and like involving them. And to skip over the gnarliest parts, that man was dead within a couple of weeks. Mm. But my addict idiot brother, after he killed him, robbed him. Mm. Took all his money and all his guns and all his pills. Mm. <laughs> and... um Eventually got caught, confessed to all that the way that I said it. Yeah. We went to a suppression motion. We won. Dude, we knew we won. <laughs> Judge was an idiot. He <clears throat> said that he would leave the confession in, but that he credited all the witnesses as being honest. Without getting too much in the weeds, if my dad and my cousin who was there when he got arrested were telling the truth, there's no way this confession could have stayed in. Mm. So we're like, all right, we're going to appeal. They offered my brother a pretty good plea deal, but he had to promise not to appeal. Uh, I didn't want him to take it, but he did. That was hard. It's hard yeah. on my family. Uh, I think people wanted to see him fight, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then at the same time, I've been quickly promoted to felony, which was their plan when they hired me. They had me in misdemeanor for a little while so I could meet 
everybody and get mm-hmm. my footing in the legal community, but then yeah. they had me in felonies. At your job. Yeah. So I became the point man on pretty serious cases. Yeah. While all that that I just explained mm-hmm. was kind of going on and, and the process of it was and my family was a wreck and yeah. my family hadn't been to law school. I was the first person to go to graduate school. My mom might have beat me by a few years. I'm very proud of my mother. She went to <laughs> she got her degree at, in her thirties, and I think she got her master's degree a little bit before I got mine. But anyway, um, we aren't people who were equipped. Mm-hmm. No one's equipped for that. We aren't people who had any tools. Yeah, and they were kind of looking to me, mm-hmm. and of course they were. I was an attorney, yeah. but like it, it, thirty years of experience. Yeah, I mean, my brother's attorney was mm-hmm. the best. Yeah. in that region mm-hmm. by a lot. A lot. <laughs> he still thinks about it. He texts me every once in a while. He feels bad. My brother did the most time of anyone that he's ever represented. Mm. That case was awful. Yeah. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was the hardest time of my life. There was a moment where my wife, who I love very much, yeah. set me down and was like, you've got to make a change or I'm going to. And what she meant was she's going to leave me. Yeah. It was just too hard. Mm -hmm. I was unhappy. I was angry. I was unhealthy. I was drunk. That part was fun. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm a comedian now, and it's like, this is funny (laughs) stuff. Hilarious. All that, all that murdering of pedophiles, that right there. Mm. Call Chris Rock. Yeah. Um, Anyway, yeah, to answer your question, what was that time like? It was fucking terrible. I weighed like 210 pounds. Uh, I had a, ended up with a heart problem. I had blood clots mm-hmm. in one of my arms that just like developed. Like I almost died twice. Wow. Yeah. I think in, well, first of all, I think it's, it's, it's a testament to your character that you, that you picked up and moved to be there with your brother and with your family. Yeah. There's a guy who unfortunately I'm not friends with because he confessed to me that he was in love with me, uh, one night drunkenly and that we should live on the moon together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. It was weird. Uh, and then he hates my wife. Um, but he was my trial <laughs> partner. Brilliant dude. Mm-hmm. Even though he was clearly weird. But he's, we were on the beach one day, like a weekend. We had our cases with us, just doing our jobs, trying to make it as young attorneys. I think we'd probably smoke pot. And he goes, why are you here? I was like talking about my mom or whatever being sad. And I go, huh? And he goes, what the fuck are you doing here, dude? Mm-hmm. You don't need to be here. At the Miami-Dade County Public Defender's Juvenile <laughs> Division? What the fuck are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, right. Like, this was a sort of dream I had, but even that, not really. Like, And then I went home. Yeah. I went home like the next week. Wow. And was was your brother's situation happening then? Yeah, it had just begun to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in, in moments where we're supporting other people through tough times it's easy to take for granted the effect that someone else's hardships can have on us and the fact that we need to take care of ourselves even more yeah during those times yeah um you know conversations about that exact thing with my wife who was just basically like you got to start taking care of yourself or i'm gonna have to leave because i can't take care of you and Mm -hmm. myself we talked a lot about that you know my brother had a wife he had two kids, another on the way, and then he had two parents who loved him very much. And I sort of was like, yeah, I'm like way down on the totem pole in terms of whose life is the most wrecked right now. <laughs> I have a wife that loves me. I have a career ahead of me. My son is not about to go to prison. Yeah. My father is not about to go to prison. My husband is not about to go to prison. And she's like, all that can be true, and this can still be killing you. Yeah. She's like, if you have a heart attack, I'm not going to say that at your funeral, just yeah. so you know. I'm not going to say, well, it was harder on his pa- his mom. Yeah. And I was like, all right, that's a, that's a pretty good way to phrase it. Thanks, mm-hmm. love. <laughs> I picked a good one. If you're going to get married up, pick a good one. Yeah, some tough love right there. Um, so it sounds like it took a really big toll on you. But eventually <laughs> you're, you like woke up and you're like, I need to start taking care of myself. How did you do that? The first thing I did was quit. Quit what? Being a public defender. Oh, right, right. My brother went to prison. Mm-hmm. And I told my family, I love you guys. My wife followed me back to East Tennessee where she did not want to be. Mm-hmm. We met in college. She's also from East Tennessee. I'm going to go wherever she wants next. 
and uh, we're going to kind of start over mm-hmm. for her. At least that's what I told myself. She deserves it. Mm-hmm. And um, we got to New York. I had my resume. I had my recommendations. My boss was upset that I left, but I was going to be a Brooklyn defender or a Bronx defender, or mm-hmm. Harlem defender. And I think I was maybe on a train on the way to an interview or something. <laughs> I just came back home. And I was like, what happened? You're not, I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I'd been going to open mics every night in New York at that point. I started working at Trader Joe's because nice. I love Trader Joe's. <laughs> yeah, I love it so much. Which that's, that's if I do have tips for anybody out there, if you love something like that, don't go work there because it was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> oh my God, and their goddamn Hawaiian shirts and all that. You know how when you go there and they're all like, hello, how may I help? That's fake as hell. They're just like Chick-fil-A, only they're atheists. Um, but anyway... That was the main thing. Yeah. I'm not sure other stuff I did then was very healthy. Mm-hmm. I receded a lot. Yeah. I had been a very ambitious. You asked me in the beginning about the small town. One way the small town and the Christianity I was raised in affected me. I had barely done any drugs. Mm-hmm. That was also my brother. My brother's an addict. I'm not even going to get, I'm not even going to smoke pot. Mm-hmm. At like 28 or however old I was, 26 when I was living in New York, suddenly I was like, all right. I'm going to work at Trader Joe's. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get high on pot every day. I'm going to go to open. I became a dirt ball. I became a yeah. dirt ball comedian, but I was a little older than the other dirt ball comedians. <laughs> so I receded in some ways, but I guess I felt like I needed to do that or I just needed to pause. Yeah. My wife became a manager at a catering place. Mm-hmm. Every time they had a big event, I would come. They mm-hmm. paid way too much money because all of their workers were like models. Mm-hmm. So okay. I was the, I was like the ugliest one, mm-hmm. getting like forty dollars an hour. Nice. I was surly. I was hammered. Everyone <laughs> loved me. I'd get drunk with the dishwashers. They made all the. Uh, they would let white people and Latinos do the mm-hmm. front of the house, and a few gorgeous black men, and then everybody else was back. I would just be back there in the back house getting fucked up. I drank so much yeah. seven hundred dollar bottles of champagne. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. I just there was something about it. like I thought I was cool. Like I'm just fucking <laughs> taking it, you know. Yeah. So I didn't, it's like, oh, what did you do to get out of it? I receded. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, arrested development. I, I went, I, I stopped. I went backwards. Yeah. But I had to, I think. It was yeah. like, I was this fucking 27-year-old full-time or whatever age lawyer who had the burden of his own family leaning on him, even mm-hmm. though he was the baby and his brother was going to prison and all that. And I was like, it was just like a record scratch. Yeah. Uh, I started doing Molly. That was fun. <clears throat> uh... How I tried coke. It sucked. Everybody, cocaine sucks. Don't do it. And uh, yeah, this actually a podcast. Don't do drugs. I think that's do some drugs. Do just drugs. say maybe. <laughs> just say we'll just see. Say no. <laughs> just say perhaps. Okay. Just say sometimes oh responsibly God. with testing kits. Um, started doing mushrooms a little bit. Uh, just really became like who I probably should have been in college Mm. instead of being this ambitious, I'm getting out of my town. I've got a chip on my shoulder. I'm going to go to law school. Became a dirt ball. Um, And then that obviously wasn't sustainable. Yeah. I learned I was good at comedy. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be great at it. I started getting jobs doing document review, which is very unfun legal work, but Mm -hmm. it paid way better than Trader Joe's. And I didn't have, I had a boss who, didn't really respect me, but recognized that I'd been to law school and like, you know, no one asked me why I'd been in the bathroom for 12 minutes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Which is what you get at Trader Joe's, the atheist Chick-fil-A. So, um, <laughs> then I started structuring my life around comedy. It was something that was fun. Mm-hmm. The stakes were so low. No one's going to prison. And yeah. it, and that was thing that was, a, that was advantage I had on other young comics. It was like, what if we bomb? What if a dude goes away for nine years and his mom's heart breaks into a million yeah. pieces? Who gives a fuck if you bomb, yeah. dude? Grow up. Mm-hmm. So I had that, not edge, I wasn't edgy, but that edge to me of like, whatever. And um, that was one of the best times of my life. It's once I got my mental health right. Yeah. I, you know, the the... What's the word? The ripple effect of everything mm-hmm. I've been through. It took me a few years How to process all that. How did you get your mental health in check? <laughs> like, what was the wake-up call for you? And The wake-up call was having a panic attack mm. that I thought might be a clot issue because yeah. I'd had the clots already. And, and a doctor told me he prescribed to me that I move. 
an emergency room doctor at NYU Medical prescribed to me that I leave New York City. (laughs) And I was like, I got to figure out what's going on with me. Because people are like, you can't handle this city. And I was like, it's not the city. Yeah. It's me. Mm -hmm. Uh, A leftover issue from the clots was that I had developed a heart condition that's common when you have a major surgery. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that because I wasn't going to the doctor. I found that out. I uh, I didn't commit fraud by any means, but I, I used the new Obamacare laws that came out around that time to the fullest advantage. Mm-hmm. Like I had a pre-existing condition. I got the best health care there was. I scheduled a surgery for January 7th. I paid like $2,000 for one of the best heart surgeons in the world to fix my heart. And then I dropped that insurance the next month. <laughs> um, it was paying attention. You know, it was recognizing that there was a problem and that it's worth figuring out. Yeah. Started exercising again. Mm. I stopped being a dirtball comedian. Mm-hmm. I stopped drinking all the damn time. Um, outside walks in the park. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. Just like slowing down. Yeah, and um, and then honestly, and this is unfortunately not anything you can control necessarily. Success, mm-hmm. success help me yeah i started to get success and i needed it maybe for my ego but also like for my bank account yeah and so that i could not have really two full-time jobs because i was pursuing comedy pretty hard and i was working yeah. 50 hours a week that's tough yeah so you know this podcast is about finding meaning in life's unexpected turns mm-hmm. and and that doesn't mean that we're thankful for all the hard times that we went through necessarily it but it does mean that you know, we find meaning in the hard times, whether that's the healing that comes from it or finding out a little bit more about ourselves after the hard times or yeah. like learning and appreciating who supports us during those hard times and like feeling that love and support from people. Um, and I, I hear in what you're sharing is you, you sort of had to go through this, this hard what did, dirt ball process <laughs> your words not mine <laughs> and like you're so nervous about calling me a dirt ball i don't know if that's a testament to how good of a person you are or how good of a person you think i am <laughs> but you had to go through that to um to get to where you lived are. in a car in la for a little while that was fun nice. dirt balling dude <laughs> dirt balling but you, but my point is you you sort of had to kind of maneuver through that time to realize that to realize what your coping skills are, what what works for you, right? <laughs> and what's not working and for me. And what does not work for you. I think you. that's more important for me. Yeah. I'm a learn by example guy too. Yeah. For sure. I also had to learn the ways that I was strong. It wasn't the ways necessarily that I value or want to be. Mm-hmm. I'm a strong person, but it's not the way that I want to be, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm not even sure I can explain to you what I mean without spending an hour and a half. But, yeah. but that was an important lesson to learn. You are very strong. Mm-hmm. It doesn't manifest itself the way that you wish it would or the way you taught, you've been taught that it should. Yeah. I, I thought I was like, the, let's circle the wagon. We're going to get through this and I'm going to be strong and this is how we're doing it and here's the plan and, and that's not really... I can do that for other people mm-hmm. very well. That's why I thought I'd be able to do it in my own life. Mm-hmm. That was the part of being a bubble defender I was great at. Mm-hmm. I could make people feel like we got some hope and we have a plan here. Yeah. And it, and it was true. I would never lie to people. Who did you lean on for strength during that time? Or for my support? wife. Your wife. Yeah, because everyone else in my life, like I said, was going through yeah. it too. Everyone that I leaned outward. on. Well, and then I got to give, I guess, props to my buddy, Ben. It's pretty funny. Ben, he teaches at Harvard now, so it all worked out. <laughs> but he was he was between, I think, a program in Indiana and NYU. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, just do NYU so you can be by me. Mm-hmm. And we were by each other and we leaned on each other. And then like... A year in, I moved out to Queens, so I was far from him in, by New York standards. Yeah. And then like two years later, I was out of the city. <laughs> but I leaned on Ben, and I leaned on my wife. And I leaned on my mom, I guess, and dad to a certain extent, and I leaned on other friends, but yeah. it was hard. They were leaning on me, really. I yeah. really leaned on my wife. I think um, for me, when I'm going through hard times, it's hard for me to allow people to support me. I'm a very, like just kind of go through it by myself kind of person. Um, But I'm learning that connection in hard times is really important. Yeah, I'm terrible at it. You know, that was, that was the honest answer, my buddy Ben and my wife, but I don't know if they feel that way. 
Yeah. You know, like I mostly was just in my own head, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't mean like I did it on my own. No, yeah, it was terrible. No, I should yeah. have been reaching out more. Mm-hmm. My wife also went through a really tough bout of depression in New York that was uh, hormone related. It took us a while to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And so like she had her own shit going on too, you know, and I think that's another thing that's tough about growing up and being an adult is sometimes you're like, shit, I don't have anybody. And the thing is though that you do, cause you don't need anyone to do it all for you. Mm-hmm. You just need someone to like be a sounding board. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So thank you for being so open about that and sharing your experience. I think, <laughs> I think it it's really going to be helpful for listeners going through hard times and just, you know, we're not perfect. We're only human. Sometimes we fall and, the fact that you got back up and you are where you're at today, I think that's the inspiring part. And that's what this show's all about. Yeah. It's weird. Thank you for saying that. The toxic masculinity in me was like, Oh no, we just did a Gwyneth Paltrow podcast. (laughs) Um, but like, okay. Uh, we just announced that we're pregnant. Yes. Not us, just you and your wife. Yeah. I I think they got it. Okay. (laughs) And, uh, so many congrats came in and they're yeah. appreciated, but like so few compared to so many compared to the special. Like I was joking with my wife this morning. I go, I'm not going to post this cause it'll come across as bitter and I don't feel bitter, but I genuinely think it's funny <laughs> that 2000 people, 8,000 people, whatever number told me congrats that I did a thing. Everybody has almost anybody can do that. 90% of the world can do, which is get someone pregnant. <laughs> and then like, very few people compared to that told me congrats on my Amazon special, which almost no one can fucking do in this <laughs> industry we're in right now. Cause it sucks. Right. Yeah. I bring that up because like just going on like the child process reminds me of it. Cause it's the most common thing in the world, but you should be congratulated for it because I'm not sure if I'm expressing this the right way, but, just continuing on is the most human thing you can do. And it is what we all got to do. Mm-hmm. But when someone does that, we should congratulate them. Yeah. Like it makes me feel a little uncomfortable because I'm like, I didn't do anything. Yeah. I just didn't kill myself. Thought about it a few times. Mm-hmm. I just didn't become a dirtball forever. Almost did a few times. But it's like, yeah, that's common. But it still is bravery. Like bravery can be common. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. But And to put it in like more perspective, a lot of people don't have that bravery and don't make it and aren't here to tell their story. So, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I Honestly, I think we're all doing all right. Yeah. I, I genuinely do. <laughs> even the people who, I don't want to get too dark, but even the people who didn't make it here for whatever reason, maybe that was brave. Yeah. Maybe it was brave for them to tap out, man. Like I just, I just feel like we should recognize that um, just finding a way to continue on is absolutely one of the most common things in the world that we all got to do. And it's still hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know the I mean? whole point of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, okay. Where are we? You're in LA. You're doing comedy. You find mm-hmm. some success. You talked about bombing, so I'm going to skip over that question. <laughs> what <laughs> What is a thank you for saying no moment in your comedy slash acting journey sure. that Okay, I got, a, I got a real juicy one, but it's tough for me. Okay. I may have to bend your rules a little bit. I'm not sure I'm grateful for this, okay. but I try to be. We'll work through it. I was in New York. Mm-hmm. I moved to LA somewhat recently. So to catch people up, uh, one of my friends kind of broke the internet before anybody was going viral. As a matter of fact, it was so new to go viral as a stand-up comic, especially in a character, that mm-hmm. people shit on him. Mm-hmm. His name's Trey Crowder. He went viral as a character called the Liberal Redneck. And like comics were like, fucking, this guy's <laughs> not a real comedian. And I was like, you couldn't follow him in a fucking dream, dog. Mm-hmm. But back then, that's what comics did. Mm-hmm. The, the comics weren't going viral yet, so they were like, what is this YouTube bullshit? <laughs> So he goes viral. We create this well-read community. It means well-redneck, smart redneck. How do you spell it? Uh, W-E-L-L-R-E-D. Mm-hmm. thought I couldn't spell it because I'm a redneck. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so yeah, short for well-redneck. We create, honestly, a culture, mm-hmm. which I'm proud of. Yeah. The book comes out. We get the tour. Career's starting to pick up a little bit. Still running into, that chip comes back a little bit, that chip on your shoulder. Still running into, you know, I don't get it. Like, are, mm-hmm. So are you like Foxworthy? We're kind of the opposite of Foxworthy, not that we don't respect him. So you're smart, 
but you're goofy. This ain't going to work, you know, like whatever. Mm-hmm. Roy Wood Jr., so kind with his time. Not just, in my opinion, the best comic of our generation, but so kind with his time. He's on The Daily Show. Uh, Jordan Kepler was moving on at Comedy Central when people remember that that, that, that was happening. And, uh, you know, to be blunt and put in the parlance of the industry, they needed a new white guy. Mm-hmm. So they're going to get rid of Kepler. They want another white guy. Mm-hmm. Roy helped me audition, put a tape together. I wrote a piece that I'm very proud of uh, that was in my voice, but also fit what they were doing. They loved it. I broke, I, I entered, I Read with Trevor in front of their producers. Nice. Got a lot of laughs. I broke Trevor twice. I got him to laugh <laughs> during it, which was like my goal. Where I was like, you got to make Trevor laugh and you're good. Did you talk about the Nelson Mandela story? I told him that off camera. Okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, I lived in South Africa. And he was like, what? And I was like, <laughs> in my head, I'm like, yeah. Like on yeah. the way in, I was like, as soon as I get a chance, I'm like, hey, just by the way, you know, I live in South Africa. No big deal. Sorry to divert you yeah. there. <laughs> you ever met Nelson? Oh, you didn't. But your boy did. Yeah, just come in one up in the host. Yeah. <laughs> as I was leaving the audition, and I think it went pretty well. I don't think it was a 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I was nervous. Mm-hmm. I hadn't, I was young. I, I wasn't, like if I did it now, I would knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. If I did it now, Comedy Central, <laughs> I would crush it. Yeah, they're watching this for sure. <laughs> um, when I left, I saw Michael Costa. Mm-hmm. Who was going to read after me? Michael Costa had just gotten a show on E that he ended up saying no to, so he could do the Daily Show. Yeah, him and Trevor are friends. He already had a career. He already had a following. I was like, "Oh, I'm not getting it." <laughs> like I, I thought that maybe like people like Costa were too big to even want that. It's like, mm. Damn, dude, you got your own show on E. Let me have this, yeah. Michael. So as I leave, I'm like, "All right, I'm not getting it," and I didn't. Mm-hmm. And Roy, maybe he was being nice. Maybe the producers were just being nice to him, but they were like, "That guy was great." You know, mm-hmm. um, it was close. I don't think it was close. I think that it was a formality, mm-hmm. uh, which is understandable. Costa got that job by the work he had done before going into that room. Yeah. I'm trying to be thankful for that. Mm-hmm. That definitely would have been completely life changing. Yeah. It also would have tied me to New York mm-hmm. at a time where my wife was miserable in New York. Yeah. Her depression was kicking in. And you too. Yeah, it was it was hard. It also would have tied me to that I don't know our producers want to change the light from the uh outside because my forehead is so big it looks like <laughs> looks like a fucking whiteboard on the screen. Just write it just just write it right there. Just write what are you grateful for? Uh I'm trying to be grateful for that missed opportunity because yeah. it has led to some very cool things. Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask you, let me ask you this. Yeah. What doors opened after that? Uh, so me, Trey and Corey, the guys that we sold a pilot to ABC. Mm-hmm. I may have been able to work on that for the daily show, but I doubt it. I think my contract would have been, mm-hmm. no, you're out. I wouldn't have got any of that money or well, that that's experience. The thing about what ifs, you never know. But all you right. know is what did happen. Right. And I don't know what's going to happen next. Like my Amazon special, I'm proud of it, but I want another special. Comedy Central locks people down. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to do everything on there, which would have been, again, lucrative. Your boy would have a house. <laughs> but would I have that many more fans? I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not disparaging Comedy Central's platform, but if you look at some of their non headliner type people, mm-hmm. you know, the people who were, who are correspondents on shows and stuff. Yeah. It's just not, I mean, again, if anybody out there listening is like, yeah, like you wouldn't kill for that. You're right. I would, mm-hmm. but I am trying to recognize. Yeah. And I wasn't ready. That's the other thing. I do know myself. I would have got ready, but who knows? Maybe they wouldn't have given me time to, maybe they hired me. They find out I'm not ready yeah. and they get rid of me. And now I, my big first break, I failed at, Yeah. you know, and you become one of those stories. Well, and you, you sort of had a, and I don't want to, explain your story for you so i'm trying to be careful talking here but from an outsider write it on my forehead looking on the inside is still really bright (laughs) we have an angel amongst us pasty boys unite (laughs) people flipping through youtube whatever you're gonna see this you're gonna be like what is this proud boy thing what is what's going on here oh no (laughs) that guy's wider than taxes (laughs) i think you the fact that you went on your struggle and you came out the other side I think there's value in having done that and you get to share that life experience with your child that's true you know 
That's true. What a consolation prize. It's so funny. Like the comic, <laughs> that dirtball comic that's still in me. And I was like, I'd rather work for Comedy Central than have a kid. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sweetie, if you're watching this, she's not. <laughs> oh, the uh, producer's telling us he'll fix my forehead in post. Oh, great. So you'll make all my jokes lame. <laughs> can you make it smaller? <laughs> I know you're going to make it less white. Can you make it, like, can you make my hairline? Can you fix my hairline in post? Um. Okay, where are we? So... Yeah, I mean, I imagine that's very disappointing, not getting that job. But you, things that you've done instead, mm -hmm. right? Comedy special yeah. on Amazon, a good one, yeah. a really good one. Thank you. you. Did you go on tour after that? or I was already timeline? on tour. You were so already I was in the tour. middle of touring. So you got to continue being on tour. That's true. And weren't you and selling, doing selling out shows with, your, oh, yeah. with Well Read? Oh, yeah. We had a lot of fun. I got better as a comic, a yeah. lot better. I mean, I got ready. You know, that's the thing. If and when an opportunity like that comes again, I'll be more ready because of that mm -hmm. failing. And then also, like I said, I sold a TV show. Like yeah. it, it, It's all definitely for the best and anyone listening who knows anything about the business mm -hmm. that wasn't my job like it, i was not gonna get it mm -hmm. my it was for michael costa yeah like they have to hold the auditions mm -hmm. but he had it yeah and that's fine he earned it before like mm -hmm. with through his work that he'd already done you know what i mean so and what i refuse to do is make this my thing that i talk about for 30 fucking years mm -hmm. you know i love mark maron no offense to him but like he talked for a decade about how he didn't get snl on yeah. his podcast and it almost became its own bit like a funny thing like mark's still upset about it mm -hmm. but i just didn't i didn't want that for my life yeah you know just let it go i think you've done some really good things really great things um since that didn't work out and i think absolutely i think that's awesome and that's what the show is about is like the thing like how we take tough situations and, and turn them around. And whether you feel that, I see that in your story. Thank you. Big time. Yeah. Um, so a theme in this podcast has been the no's that come from us, the, where we're like, I need to do something different, right? And for you, it was not being an attorney, not being a public defender, yeah. and doing comedy full time, yeah. um, and taking that leap. Right. I mean, it was a leap. It was something different. And for the listeners at home thinking about taking a leap, following a dream, doing something different, like what made you feel comfortable to make that transition? I was miserable. Yeah. What, what did I have to lose? Mm. Like, and that's what I would ask people. And I know people have different scenarios. Maybe they've got a, a nice house in a nice part of town where the schools are good and they're worried about their kid. So maybe they have things going on in their lives that I didn't have to process. So I'll recognize that people have different situations than I had. But generally speaking, it's like, what are you? You're already unhappy if you are. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen that's worse than that? Yeah. Like if the dream won't eat you. Mm -hmm. It And also another thing, and I said this to Trey, who's far more successful than me. And he's brought this up a and lot. And Trey is your friend yes. who you did comedy with. Yes, that I, that I tore with and I, and I still do. Uh, mm hmm I told him when we were starting out as open micers, when we were in Knoxville doing, after I moved there, I met him. Trey was a, a contract negotiator for the Department of Energy, I think. Nice. And I was... He's, uh, so he's an attorney too? No. He, oh, okay. he had a business degree. Okay. And I was an attorney, you know, working downtown. We, mm -hmm. would, we would show up in our dress suit and either change in the car or just <laughs> go on stage like that. And, I, and this is, I'm sure you got a lot of type A's and a lot of attorneys maybe who listen to this and stuff who might be thinking about a switch. If you've been successful at something you don't like, why the fuck are you afraid you can't be successful yeah. at something you love? Yeah. And I know why. Because if you fail at what you don't like, who gives a shit? Whereas if you fail at your dream, it hurts. And yeah. I failed at my dream and it fucking does hurt. But that's literally the only fear that's logical. Everything else is stupid. How will I make it? How the fuck did you make it as an attorney? Mm -hmm. The same way. Mm -hmm. Hard work. Failing, yeah. trying, failing, mm -hmm. figuring it out. And by the way, for the record, I'm going to go back and rewatch this segment once a month because I do, I still do it. I know what we're afraid of. This, this episode? This particular part because I need to remember oh, yeah. what I'm like, that, that I believe this yeah. in my core because I know it's hard. Mm -hmm. You're afraid of failing at what you love. Yeah. Failing at something you don't love, who gives a shit? But my point is, if you can be good at something you don't care about, then you can definitely be good at something you care yeah. about. And I think that resonates even for people who aren't attorneys, right? Because a lot of people have their day jobs and then their passion jobs and, and they're trying to break into whatever their passion is. And so 
yeah, I mean, I think failure is a really big part of everything, but it's how you, like, I try not to use the word fail. I like lessons better. Sure. (laughs) But everything's a lesson, you know? And I think after you tried things and they didn't work out and you picked yourself up again and you tried things and they didn't work out and you picked yourself up, you build a trust within yourself that no matter what you try. I'm a loser. You'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I can't help but make the joke. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. But you'll be able to figure it out. And, I think so. And I think, so for me, when I think of taking a leap, like for me, I guess the leap might be this podcast, you mm-hmm. know, but it's, it's having support is a big one. Um, like not being afraid for it to not work out, you know, and trusting that I'll be able to figure out whatever is next. It's not like I quit my day job for this, you know, and I don't, I don't plan on it necessarily, but, but the the point is still there, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have trust within myself because of having tried things over and over again. And I also, and I think maybe for you, like you've, you developed a craft, right? You got really good at what you're doing. So yeah, you, I did. you got confidence in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, you know, and, and still there's fear and pain. You know, I got really good at stand-up comedy, mm-hmm. live especially. <clears throat> I'm not a clip guy. Most of my jokes are five minutes long. The internet is now changing yeah. my industry. So, like, there's still this fear and pain along the way where you're like, God damn, I got really good. Sometimes I feel like a, a silent film star and the talkies are here. <laughs> like, I got really good at a thing and now it's kind of gone, you mm-hmm. know? And people are like, no, but it's the same skills. You can just do talkies. It's like, no, but I talk like this. <laughs> Um, my point with that is like that cycle won't stop. You have to decide how to approach it in your life. You have to decide to approach it positively Mm -hmm. as best you can and be like, yep. And I'll just keep going or, you know, you know, be afraid. And and like, I am afraid and I don't want to downplay that. There's a quote from a guy, he's a songwriter named Will Hogue. A country pop star covered the song and I can't remember who it is and made it more popular. But the song lyric is keep on dreaming even if it breaks your heart. Mm. And it's like, I recognize that people don't want to take leaps because it'll be a lot more heartbreaking to fail. But like, it's so much more heartbreaking not to try, in my Mm. opinion. And the other thing I want to say, though, is as someone who has defined himself by his job most of his adult life, I want to say that I really, really, though, do recognize and respect some people's dream has nothing to do with their vocation. And I look forward to letting go of this. I don't know when or if I'll ever be able to, but if I'm ever able to let go of comedy and just like my dream is to just like make my kids and my wife happy, that sounds awesome too. It's not my dream. <laughs> Ego's too big or something. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but like that, that, that I respect that too. Like some yeah. people just need to shift their thinking and recognize mm-hmm. no one gives a fuck that you work you know, as an insurance adjuster or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. What people give a fuck about is that you made your wife happy and Mm -hmm. your kid is a good person. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I think this is a good place to actually conclude a little um, because you hit a lot of points that I think were really spot on just now. Um, But I think your, your journey is a really inspiring example of of doing hard things, right? Being an attorney and being a comedian are not easy, right? Like they're no. they're tasks that people make look easy, <laughs> but they take a lot of work, a lot of work. Like the two minutes you're on stage or the two minutes you're actually in court, it's like fucking years of preparation for those two minutes. To know how to react when, yeah. a, cop, when a cop yells at you yes. and tells you that you, you know, you just want all, <laughs> all sexual assault people to go free or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So wait, yeah, I think I agree with you. I'm saying when a when a cop's like when you got him on the stand and he's like you just you're oh. just one of those people who wants crime to run amok or whatever. It's like to look good in that moment mm-hmm. takes years yes. of work, and yeah. then you look good in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and being an attorney and being a comedian both have required on the spot adaptability and resiliency and. Um, like perseverance, right? Like not not giving up in in both of them while you were doing them. Yeah. And and also recognizing when something's not working. And that's really that's the key. Is that the key to life? I think that's the key to life. Recognizing when something's not working. Yeah. Being able to adapt. Yeah. All think, of those I things. I think there's a decent argument mm-hmm. for yeah, making changes at the right time. And you you walk down paths where sometimes you couldn't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. And you got out of them and you're here. 
Yeah. I mean, well, sometimes I just got really high Yeah. and rode the train and then waited on the tunnel. But that was when I was younger. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think just keep going, mm -hmm. whatever that means for you. That might mean making a change, going in a different direction, yeah. but yeah. So what would you tell your child mm -hmm. when they go through a no moment oh, or God. an unexpected turn? What advice will you give them? Who said no to you? I'll kill them. <laughs> That's what I'll say. Uh, I mean, I think some of the points you just made yeah. of like... Well, it's your story. But you've got to recognize when you're speaking to someone young, they don't have the breadth of experience that you do. Yeah. So you have to say to them in a sincere way, not like you have to make it not sound like, you know, a cliche or this is what I'm supposed to say in this moment. <laughs> you got to be like, look, and I've had this conversation with my nephews, which is why I have some experience with this. I realized that at 16, having a hard year, that's so much of your life because you don't even remember the first five years. So yeah. like one shitty year at 16 feels like forever. Yeah. It's not. Mm -hmm. Unless you believe it is. And that's hard. Yeah. That's the part where it's like brave. If you believe that this is what life is, it will be. You'll yeah. attract that to yourself. Um, but if you believe that you can learn from this and do something different with it, you know, then that'll yeah. happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nothing's permanent. Even no. the hard stuff. Yeah. And you can tell them all day long. You got to show them too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so where can we find you? What do you have going on? What can we look forward to? This is your shameless plug. Yeah, you can follow me at Drew Morg Comedy on all platforms at Drew Morg Comedy. The A-N wouldn't fit. At least it wouldn't when I started. I don't know what they're doing now. <laughs> Million characters on Twitter. Um, I promise I'm generally not this heavy if you follow me for comedy. Uh, and DrewMorganComedy.com. And I, my podcast is Gravy Baby. My other podcast is Well Read. I mean, I'm out there. People who are interested just follow me on instagram or yeah. twitter or something and, and your show's coming up too right i'll be in san francisco this weekend mm -hmm. uh i'm at cheaper than therapy both shows on friday on saturday i am at a place called head first studios it's on your remember. website though right should be yeah it will be if it's not later today <laughs> i'll be i'll be a don't tell in San Diego oh, nice. next weekend, the two don't tell shows. Mm -hmm. uh, if you know about don't tell comedy, they're a lot of fun. Uh, I'm going to be in Portland, Oregon in April with well read. And that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that show. I'm going to be in Athens, Georgia at the end of March, getting hammered drunk, listening to the greatest <laughs> rock and roll band in the world, the drive by truckers. So if you're into Southern rock music, just come hang out with me there. Nice. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. This has been awesome. Hey, thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah. I'm keeping this. You are keeping that. Fuck yes, dude. <laughs> I thought it was a bit. I'm keeping it. Look what I got. Fuck you, Michael Costa. Oh, you got a daily show mug? <laughs> Follow and subscribe to the Thank You For Saying No podcast, and you'll get every episode as soon as it's released.